Extra Crispy Podcast. A podcast of curious conversations with me, your host, Crispin Schroeder. You know, a lot of work goes into these podcasts. From interviewing folks, I'm the engineer on this, (laughs) uh, to research before episodes, editing it all together, creating original music, putting all the musical transitions through... Typical episode takes between 8 and 12 hours of work to get to the final product that I upload. And I've been doing this for over two years now. This is episode 51, and I love doing it, but I am ready to take this thing to the next level. Turn out more episodes per year and higher quality episodes. And this is where you come in. I just launched a Patreon page this week. And if you head over to Patreon, P-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-T-A-
the the musicians in this house outnumber humans. Uh, Your wife plays? No, she doesn't. She doesn't. Yeah. We've kind of got a joke going because my wife loves to dance, mm-hmm. and I'm I'm not really good at dancing because I've usually been playing music. Yeah, people are dancing. Yeah. So uh, she, uh, when we were dating, we're driving to Texas to see my family and. She was singing along with the radio, and I thought she was making a joke, like just trying to sing bad. <laughs> and I and I said something to her, and and she's like, "No, that's my real life." <laughs> <laughs> so we've got an agreement. I won't dance if she won't sing. But I, my wife and I, pretty much the same. You you can't get her to sing anything. She will not. I mean, she will not even you know attempt it in front of anybody. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah, it's it's funny. She doesn't she doesn't play any instruments, but now between so my son plays guitar and now he plays tuba. My daughter, it turns out she's a real artsy type and a few years ago she was going to Noka for film and um you know, I've never tried to push music on kids yeah. I, I think i think it's always a mistake when you try to force kids yeah, to play yeah, music do anything really and um yeah and uh, so I, I always had the philosophy of like i'm just going to keep instruments around if they're ever interested yeah, they can pick be, one up it'll be there and so this buddy of mine you see up there there's this ukulele made with a cigar box oh yeah this buddy of mine made that for me a few years ago it's like I actually got a fishman pickup in it and everything mm. and and so it was just sitting up on our mantle, and she goes, "Can I? Can I borrow that?" And so I'm like, "Sure." So she, unbeknownst to us, like for a year, she was watching YouTube videos and figuring out how to play the the oh, wow. the uh, what do you call that uh, ukulele. Yeah. And um, so she'd been going to Noka for, I guess it was her junior year, and then we found out she invited us to this festival. There's a festival called Chaz Fest. You mm-hmm. ever heard of that one? It's mm-hmm. It happens around, like, before Jazz Fest, but it's down in, uh, um, gosh, I forget. It's kind of near the Bywater area. Okay. It's just a, like a neighborhood festival, but they've got, yeah. like, ten bands. Yeah, yeah. She goes, I got a gig. And we're like, you got a gig? You're doing what? And uh, <laughs> so we, me and me and Dina showed up at this gig to watch her play, and they proceeded for the next 30 minutes to play all original music, and then she comes out with an album two weeks later. We're like, wow. I called my dad up. I was like, we found out my daughter has this whole secret. Yeah, yeah. She she's never been like, yeah, you know, wanting yeah. to play in front of right, people. Right, but, right. but she she recorded an album, wrote all these songs, and then even did a music videos for it. And and that's uh, amazing. And I told my dad, I was like, I don't know what's going on. He said, Well, coming from your father, um, if the worst thing you find out is that your your kid has a secret music, yeah, life, it's, not too, it's not too bad. Let me it's tell a lot you, better. yeah, but it's a lot of humility there too, you know. <laughs> That's that's good. Yeah, but it, it it's cool. It's cool to see see the kids kind of coming into their own. And uh, yeah, I wish I wish my son was here. He might he might sh- stop by. Uh, he's sixteen, so he's been playing guitar for a couple of years. So uh, I was going to try to get him over to the recording session when you were playing, but he was busy doing school stuff. But uh, he, he'd probably pick your brain for some tips. Oh, so. no problem. <laughs> No problem. So when did you start playing guitar? Is it guitar your first instrument? Or Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, it was my first instrument. I, I wanted to be a drummer. 
Um, you know, because I grew up with Beatle records, you know. <laughs> so um, I would, uh, you know, my parents had a couple of bar stools and I used to sit on one and beat on the other one with pencils, you know, like it was a <laughs> snare drum, you know. And, and I'd play along the Beatle records, you know, to first first Beatle album. And um, and then um, and then I went from that to um, strumming on a tennis racket, <laughs> like an old tennis racket that um, in my my cousin. I had a cousin lived around the corner, and she'd come over with her daddy's old guitar, and I'd have the tennis racket. So we'd beat on that and pretended we were, you know, John and George, and um, <laughs> and then. Um, when I was like uh, oh, eight years old, well, I was about eight around that time. But when I was eight or ten, eight or nine years old. Um, an uncle of mine gave me this guitar that somebody left at his house, and it was an old Regal, an old Regal acoustic. Oh yeah. And so I banged around on it for a couple of years, and you know, just basically banged on it. But <clears throat> there was a gentleman that lived across the street who was a Pro pro musician, he played on Bourbon Street, played in a Dixieland band, and he taught me my first five chords, <laughs> and um and he showed them to me in one session, and I got it, went home, played it for my dad, and he was he he couldn't believe it. He was like, you 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 learned all of that in one in one day? I said, yeah, it was about an hour, you know. Wow. So it just kind of went from there, you know. Um, I've never had formal training or anything, um, so it was always by ear you know so after once i had those few chords down i was able to you know i i, I was able to you know, hear that then i'd hear something on a beetle record yeah. oh that sounded like that c chord you know or that a7 chord you know and from there it just grew you know so you were did you grow up in new orleans i grew up in gentilly okay yeah you know? yeah i grew up on parker street um which for those about who are not three familiar with New York. Orleans is just a neighborhood in New Orleans, right? What's that? For those who who listen who are not familiar with New Orleans, Gentilly's just oh, a, a little neighborhood. Yeah, in New yeah, yeah. Seven Ward, um, and it was about uh, three blocks from up Parker Street from Dillon University. So it was a great neighborhood. Um, it was a wonderful neighborhood actually because our whole family was uh, my my grandfather at one point owned the entire block but during the depression he started uh he had to sell off lots but he always kept he kept all of the lots between on lafreniere street between turo and parger and as his children got married they each got a lot and they all built so the entire block was all aunts uncles and cousins and I had my father's parents, my grandparents lived on one corner, and my mother's grew up on the opposite corner. So I had grandparents on each corner and all aunts, uncles, and cousins in between. And then we lived right around the corner. So we had our own little village, you know. It was fantastic growing up, you know, wow. with all my cousins, you know. So, yeah, it was really nice. So is your is your family musical, or is it... Um, I had uh, one of my first inspirations was a yeah, cousin of mine who lives in, well, he's in Slidell now. He used to, they used to live in Pearl River. But a couple of cousins that played guitar. So when I was, a, and they're a few years older than me. So whenever we'd have uh, family 
get togethers, Easter and New Year's Day and, you know, stuff like that. Um, I just sit there and just listen to them play. And I was just, <laughs> I was amazed, you know, just that sound, you know. Yeah. And they lived out in Pearl River, had a big, beautiful plot of land with a beautiful pond. And, yeah, my cousin Ray would be inside playing guitar, but you could just hear it no matter where you were on the property or the other side of the pond. Or, and I just remember that sound just coming across the pond, you know. It was just so beautiful, you oh, know. Wow. So that was like, that was a really strong impression, you know. So how old were you when you got your first paying gig? And what was that? Oh, Paying gig. Um, I remember doing. I remember doing a lot of battle of the bands and stuff like that. Like in my freshman year in high school, um, I think paid. Actually, actually, I do remember. Uh, my first paid gig was. I guess I was uh, fifteen, maybe sixteen. And this cousin of mine that uh, from Pearl River, he got a gig out at Salt Bayou Bar. Um, you know, heading out fourth Highway 433, okay. heading out toward the Wrigley's. Well, at Salt Bayou, down Salt Bayou Road, there was this, this you know, old man country bar, you know. And he got a gig playing there for uh, uh, Past the Hat, all the beer you could drink, and he always gave him a bottle of something when he left. So my cousin Ray asked me if I would do it with him on Saturday nights. So I started doing that on Saturday nights. I was like 15, you know, and he'd bring me up in there, and we'd play Johnny Cash songs and just old country songs. And, you know, so, yeah, that was my first paid gig because we'd split that that tip <laughs> jar at the end of the night, and we'd, we usually go home pretty good, you know. Cause you know, old old country guy. It, 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 if you could play their tune, they'd stick fifties, hundred dollar bills in there. They didn't care, you know. And the more they drink, the more they give. And, uh, that's right. That's right. And, and the better we sounded. That's right. But um, so that was my first paid gig. Yeah. Wow. And then uh, around the same time, I started playing uh, in Slidell. We had moved to Slidell by this point. Um, there was. Uh, there was a teacher, I can't remember what school he taught at, but he used to rent the arcade, you know, the arcade theater on on um, Carey Street in Slidell. You're not familiar with it? It's a beautiful, it was a beautiful theater back in the day, and then they just kind of gutted it and used it for different events. But um, this gentleman used to rent the building, and he would do teenage get-togethers on Friday, Saturday nights, and um, and I think it was like two dollars to get in, and he would give the band the door, and he took the concession, and we'd walk out of there on a Friday Saturday night with sometimes more money than I make now. Wow! Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was seventeen. This was like senior year in high school, junior year in high school. So I was sixteen, seventeen. Yeah, yeah. So it's funny, my son Ezra, he so he plays in two brass bands. One he plays guitar in, the other he plays tuba in. Mm -hmm. 
and this the one he plays tuba in has been around for about four years called baby in the brass hearts and uh so he he just started playing for them a few months ago because their other tuba player was moving off to college so my son's 16 but he uh he comes home like he had a couple of gigs in the weekend and he got he like made a hundred bucks a gig and he was like dad you know he's like so excited <laughs> and i told him i said i said son i'm so happy for you i said but I do have to tell you this. I said, my first paying gig I ever played when I was eight, 17, 18, I got paid a hundred bucks and I still got gigs where I'm making a hundred yeah, bucks. That's <laughs> like, yeah. It's, it's funny how things don't change, you know? Uh, yeah. And it seems unfortunately music business is just like, you're getting worse and worse. I, I hate to say that, but, but it, it yeah, the money goes down and, the gigs get less and less, and uh, I mean, I'm at a point in my life now where it doesn't matter. You know, I'm, yeah. you know, I'm looking to slow down a little bit anyway. But um, so I just take what I want to take, and I pass on what I want to pass on. But for the for younger guys and guys that are really looking to work, it's tough. Yeah, it's really tough. You know, I mean, I in the seventies and eighties. I made more money on Bourbon Street than guys can make down there now. Yeah, yeah. That's pathetic, you know. I mean, we really, in 79, 80, 81, made more money on Bourbon Street than you can make down there now. What was it like playing down on Bourbon Street back in the 70s? I, You know, I didn't move to Louisiana until early 90s, so I, I missed... Uh... A good chunk of New Orleans history in my life. Um, well, you know, Bourbon Street... Bourbon, you know, I got this love-hate thing with Bourbon <laughs> Street. I really can't stand going down there. I know. But, um, and in the 70s, oh, I, I kind of got in on it like in late, toward late 70s. And it was cool because there was a lot more music clubs. There was a lot less t-shirt shops. There was yeah. a lot less daiquiri shops, you know. So there was actually still some good music. You can still find traditional jazz if you wanted, and you could find Dixieland. You can find a lot of mix, a big mix of stuff, you know. Um, even I played at the 544 Club with Gary Brown for a couple of years. And even there, like during the day, there was a band from 3 to 9, and then we played from 9 to 3. Um so the band during the day was always like a country band or something. So you could find country music. You could find, yeah. you know, a lot of top 40, a lot of pop stuff, you know. But And I have no idea what's going on down there now. Um, I, I don't have a clue. But, but I know uh, over the years just kind of watched it deteriorate into more and more commercial, more T-shirt shops, yeah. more souvenir things, and more, you know, just less of that if you want to call it a cultural vibe you know yeah um yeah. you know but yeah so i have no idea what's going on down there now um but amazing that some of the people that i knew from back then are still down there oh yeah yeah I got that i can't of, believe but i have friends who play yeah eight ten hours a day down there yeah and... i couldn't do i couldn't like i didn't last that long i no. i started playing at the ivanhoe in 78 or 79 with a band called Mojo. We had a big horn band. And um, that was great. And then I moved across the street to 544. Mason Ruffner had the gig. And then he left because he was doing his first album or something. 
So he recommended me. So I started doing that. And um, and that was really a cool, cool gig. The manager was wonderful. Yeah. He was the only manager on Bourbon Street I knew that would actually offer us raises. Like every three months or so, he would wow. give us a raise, and which was unheard of on Bourbon Street. It just was unheard of. But he was always really fair with us. And so we were really fortunate because that wow. don't really exist. Other no. than, and unfortunately, he passed away a couple of years ago. But, um, yeah, it's a tough, it's a fight because, you know, you got to, you know, get down there and park and there's always a hassle and you're hauling instruments and there's people and you got to get gear in and gear out. And it was, you know, and then just that lifestyle of being, you know, six sets a night, six hours a night. Yeah. And getting off when, you know, it was nine to three on weeknights and 10 to four on weekends. Oh, my goodness. On Friday and Saturday. So, yeah, and living in Slidell, you know, I was getting home at 5 o'clock in the morning and 6 in the morning. I I got to a point where I couldn't take anymore. I, I just couldn't do it, you know. It, it was, yeah. you know, and then there's the, the unsavory elements that go along with it. Oh, I know, man. And um, I just couldn't take it anymore, you know. And, and I remember... I remember one night on a break, I was standing on the corner of Bourbon and Toulouse, and I was looking up at a full moon. And I remember thinking, Lord, if you take me away from, if you take me out of here, I swear I'll clean my life up. I'll, you know what I mean? Making one of them kind yeah. of promises. You know? <laughs> and about two weeks later, I got this really bad pain in my left hand. And then moved up to my wrist. And then a few days later, it shot up to my elbow. And then after about two weeks, boy, it hit my shoulder. And then one night, my arm just fell. And I couldn't lift it. And I had full-blown carpal tunnel. Doctor said, you have to have surgery very soon because it's really bad. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I was losing the, use of, losing the use of my arm. And... Um, I got off Bourbon Street, you know, so that's why when I learned, you know, that you get what you ask for, but you better be specific in how you ask <laughs> because you're going to get it. Yeah. It's just how, how was another story, you know, so you better be specific when you're talking to him. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's the whole, uh, yeah, asking the genie. <laughs> the the unintended yeah. consequences <laughs> but i kept my promise you did i kept my promise after that wow yeah so when did you end up hooking up with the the neville brothers well when i was on bourbon street um rita coolidge used to come in the club all the time because she was a big fan of gary brown fan of the band so she used to come in all the time and um one night she came in and she brought art and Aaron neville with her so that's why I'm Rita introduced me to Art and Aaron. Oh wow! And um, and then after that, Art used to come in occasionally, you know. So I got to know him from you know coming down there. So in the meantime, I left because of my having to have surgery, and I couldn't play for six months. I was out of work for six months while I was healing. And just when I was getting it back together, I was starting to practice a bit and get my hand back in shape trying to make some plans to get some kind of work 
right when I was ready to, you know, do something, Art called and asked me to join Neville Brothers. Oh, yeah. wow. So it worked out. It was seamless. Yeah. Too cool, man. Yeah. yeah. And so how long were you, you with the Neville Brothers? I joined them in September of 81 and played with them until January of 90. So, wow. yeah, about nine years. Dang. Yeah. A little over nine years. Yeah, it was <laughs> it was an interesting nine years. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, I learned so much, you know. I mean, those guys taught me everything, you know. Yeah. I mean, I had it together to a certain degree already, but enough to that they were interested, you know. But it's just unbelievable what I learned you know, from those guys once I got in there, you know. Because, I mean, they just all masters. I mean, just total masters at what they, each one of them was yeah. totally different at what they do, but each one of them was, you know, perfectionist at what they do, you know. So what are some of the things you learned? Well, you know, from, you know, oddly, you know, a lot of the things, I mean, a whole lot about music, you know, but a whole lot about life, you know. Art Neville, who just recently passed, yeah. you know, Art was one of my best friends. I just loved him to death. <clears throat> and Art was, Art had a lot of wisdom about him. You know, he would, he would talk, you know, he, he's a Sagittarius like me, you know, yeah. so we have a tendency to kind of just sometimes talk over people's heads, you know. And so Art would do that sometimes, you know, but. I was always able to really under well not at first but after a while I was really <laughs> able to understand him, and I and I was really able to understand that there was a lot of wisdom in that guy just and and just everyday things you know what I mean not any profound you know nothing profound or philosophical but just in everyday things his his balance, you know, his level-headedness, you know, he was, he was just, that's why he was the leader of all that stuff. He created all that stuff. I mean, without Art Neville, it wouldn't have been Meters. It wouldn't have been Neville Brothers. It wouldn't have been any of that, you know. Wow. He, 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 he created careers for so many people. I mean, you can't even count, you know. Man. But just in the years on the road with him, you know, you learn so much on the road. Just being on the road all the time and meeting all kinds of people and traveling all over the world and meeting people from other cultures and talking to people from other, you know, with totally different philosophies and totally different mindsets. And, you know, you learn a lot, you know, you learn a whole lot. But musically, that was, that was I guess, the main thing. It, it, you know, I really learned about rhythm with those guys. Oh, yeah. You know, it all... That's a master class on rhythm. Oh, there. man, just... I mean, you just surrounded by all the... You know, what, what I learned... What I learned right off the bat was... I think one of the first things was... I'd always looked at instruments in a, in a separate way. Whereas when I got with Neville Brothers, I started to approach the guitar different. I started to approach it as a percussion instrument because yeah. I started looking at everything 
as a percussive instrument, you know, because there was so much rhythm going on and all of these, you know, rhythms interweaving and intersecting and working with each other and nothing's clashing. Everything's just this beautiful dance, you know, this beautiful motion that's going on, you know. And that's when I realized, ah, you know, it's about it's about rhythm, you know. So you approach the guitar or bass, whatever you're playing, you approach it as a percussion instrument and you make sure those rhythms are working with everything else and then the notes and the chords and the melody and all of that, that's all separate, you know. That That's all just lanyard, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, once you get the rhythm thing locked in, you know, so that's where I learned that. Wow. You know, because I, rem- I remember it was... I actually remember having an epiphany. We were in some studio and we were recording a Dixie beer commercial. (laughs) And I remember we cut the track and I remember standing in the control room and Art went out to overdub a piano. And it was just something about, he already had, I think he played clavinet on it. But when he went in there and he started playing the piano and and I started really listening to how he was playing the piano, the way he approached playing with the clavinet, I don't know what happened. It just opened up. I had this epiphany and it just opened up this whole other realm of rhythm. Wow. Just... I mean, it was. I can't even explain it because I knew how rhythm worked before that, you know. But there was just something about in that moment the way he did it. It just opened up this whole thing for me. The way after that, I was just able to do it. Yeah, I didn't have to strive for it anymore. You know, it just it it would just happen. You know. Wow. I, I still can't really explain it like it was. You can you can never uh, recreate those moments. You know. There is something, you know, I, I I spent, you know, first 20 years of my life in West Texas and, you know, there's been some good music that come out of West Texas, sure. but it's, it's, uh, it really, there is something special down here. Like, like if, if, if I was growing up and I was wanting to play drums, man, I would, I, I think anybody out there listening to this, if you want to play drums, move down to New Orleans. There, there is something 
I mean, even when I go to other parts of countries and play with other good drum, like good drummers. Oh yeah, absolutely. But there is, but they don't have that thing. There, yeah. and, and it's yeah. it's a mysterious thing because I yeah. mean, you could chart it out and you could get somebody to to, to play it. Don't you have know. anything to do with it. But it's, <laughs> it, it's it really is, and it's not just the drums. It's the right. piano. The it, it it's exactly what you say. It's it's all locking in to make this rhythmic yeah. tapestry that's. Yeah. Uh, and it's you know it just it comes out of the street you know it just yeah. it comes out the street, and um, you know with all the marching bands and you know and yeah. Mardi Gras parades and the tradition goes back you know and music coming coming up from Cuba and yeah. you know places like that and all the Cuban rhythms and it's you know it's just a hodgepodge of you know a lot of different things you know, um, but yeah it is definitely special and there's nowhere else. Well, you know, there is other places, you know, you know, a funny thing, uh, growing up here and growing up with Mardi Gras parades and street beats and a few years ago, well, 2000, um, 2000 or 2001, um, I travel to India every couple of years. So, um, and sometimes I go, there's a festival called the Baja Kumbh Mela Festival. It happens every 12 years. In in Allahabad, but every twelve so every twelve years is a Kumamela festival. Every twelve festivals, every hundred and forty four years, there's the Mahakumamela festival. So it just so happened that Mahakumamela fell in two thousand one. So I went, you know, and there's millions and millions. It was like thirty million people. What part of India? In Allahabad. Okay, I don't know. So um, it's it's millions and millions of people. It, it happens over the course of several weeks, and there's people coming and going. But over the course of those few weeks, Mahakuma Mela pulled like a hundred million people. Whoa! So it's unbelievable. It's a it's a stretch of it's it's actually in the Ganga River when the riverbeds dry. So you know when the when the mountains you know frozen over. The riverbed dries up, so they hold the festival in this section of the riverbed. Wow! You know? It's like, and it's like a stretch. I think it's like two miles by, I think it's two miles wide and maybe five or seven miles long, and they have this huge, beautiful festival. And I couldn't believe that here, you know, and sages come out of the mountains and the teachers. All the meditation teachers and tantric yogis, yeah. and they all come out the mountains, and they come in on elephants, you know, and <laughs> they have these bands, these street bands, that I swear they will play in second line beats. Really, they will play in Hey Pocky Way, and they will play <laughs> all of these ancient rhythms that that are to them ancient rhythms but it was the exact same beats that we're using wow. now that came up from Cuba and 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 some of them originated here and some from Africa you know but but it's so it just shows you that in some respect it's all everywhere yeah. you know it's it's cuz i mean exact I, I don't mean like oh this kind of sounded like <laughs> i mean they they were you know, you know, and yeah. they'd, and they'd have horns and other things, and it was like it wow. was like watching some Monty Grant band coming up the street, you know, 
And then the, they coming in on the elephants, so it was like big floats coming in. It was like being in a Mardi Gras parade. It was exactly like it. You know? Wow. <laughs> With a lot more colors. With a lot more colors. India. I, yeah, I yeah. went to India back in 2006. The only time I've ever been there. I was in... Uh, Oh, gosh, I forget the name. Chennai and then Pondicherry. Okay. Uh, So kind of southern uh, India. Yeah, Aurobindo's ashram is in Pondicherry. Okay, yeah. Yeah. That was a beautiful city, really. I've never been there, but I bet it is. Well, and and it was interesting because I didn't... I didn't know much of what I was getting into. And India, boy, it is an assault on the senses. When you get down there, there's like, like you can read books about it, but actually showing up, it's like the colors, the smells, the, it is just technicolor for all your senses. And, uh, I ended up, uh, I I got me a a harmonium down there and, uh, in Pondicherry. But I, I, I read the history of the harmonium that apparently, that was brought to so Pondicherry was uh, a French colony, mm-hmm. and so the French missionaries brought these harmoniums, and then the Indians incorporated it into mm-hmm. their music, and uh, yeah, and it was it was pretty cool. Yeah, I brought it back. I mean, it wasn't it wasn't exactly in tune with everything else, but <laughs> they, they never are. No, they never are, and it doesn't matter how much money you spend on one of them; no. they never are. They're always a little bit off. Always, yeah. you always have to tune stringed instruments to the harmonium. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Right. I was, uh, I a few years ago, I was, I was playing, I was doing a lot of kind of more like uh, zydeco kind of stuff, playing accordion, mm-hmm. and I was getting into that, and uh, I needed a better accordion. I found one on Craigslist, and it said we'll trade for our harmonium, and I, I had this little harmonium, and I never, I used it like on one or two gigs, but it's not practical. Yeah, it's for, not something. Yeah, because it. it um, and so I ended up trading somebody and giving them, you know, a hundred bucks for this uh, Italian accordion, really nice, but they, uh, yeah, they have a, uh, yoga studio down in new Orleans and they, oh, okay. so they just wanted to hook it up to where you could just keep the, the resonating frequency, you know, right. while, and, and just keep it going. It wasn't Sean the, Johnson, huh? I don't, I don't know who the person <laughs> was. I mean, we met in the parking lot of a, of a. Waffle House and, oh, okay. uh, and made the exchange. And yeah. uh, <laughs> I don't know much about it. Yeah, them. those are great instruments, though. I love the sound of them. Yeah. And they yeah. create a nice drone. You know, you can do some great stuff with them. Oh, yeah. You know, play the melody, drone. You can do anything with them. So were you playing music in India or just? Um, yeah, I always did a little bit of playing, but not like gigging or anything yeah. like that. You know, it was always... Um, you know, I had a teacher over there um, in, in 1983. I met um, Swami Rama and Pandit Rajmani Tig who initiated me into a 5,000-year-old Himalayan tradition. Wow. Um, so I've had a relationship with them since. Uh, Swamiji left his body in 96. Pandit Rajmani's still around. Um, and he... Uh, he, they have a center up in um, Honesdale, Pennsylvania. So he travels back to India, back and forth. But for all those years, I made a lot of trips. I made like nine trips to, to India oh, wow. over the years, just studying with them, going over for different programs. Um, sometimes I'd bring a guitar and, yeah, we'd have music, you know. Um, we'd do kirtan, you know, chanting, and yeah. I'd tune my guitar like a tempura. You know, I tune it like all 
A flats and D flats, you know, and get these nice octave things that made it kind of almost sound like a sitar, you know. Oh, wow. So, yeah, so that's, that was kind of cool. Did you ever try playing a sitar? No, I never have. I brought I brought a female tempura back um, uh, back from uh, Delhi, but I've never I've never tried to play a, a sitar. Swamiji had one, but it was off limits. You couldn't touch it. Yeah. You know, I, I tried but, um, to play one one time. It's tough, huh? <laughs> yeah, it's yeah. pretty tough. I couldn't learn it in five minutes in the music store. <laughs> no, 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 no. They, no it was tough. actually a music store in India, and I'm like, okay, this, a little more I'm, than I'm, that. I'm gonna... <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. You know, there, there, did you ever, there was an album, it must have come out about 20 years ago, it was uh, Jerry Douglas, and uh, I forget who the sitar player was, but it was called, uh, I think the name was Bourbon and Rosewater was the name of the album, oh, wow, but no, it was no. it was American slide guitar mm-hmm. with sitar. Right. Yeah, I'm familiar with Jerry Douglas, I love it. But it was, because they both bend notes, you know, so right. it was just like, it it's actually like you can do a lot of the same. Yeah. yeah, and yeah. It, it, so it's like this really cool thing where you're having these Southern kind of bluegrassy yeah. kind of things. And then sitar is coming in and, and it's, well, it's also this other instrument. What's that instrument? It's an Indian instrument that you actually use a slide on it. Um, oh, I can't remember. I'm seeing your moment right now. <laughs> I can't remember, but that's so close to, slide guitar or pedal steel you know what i mean you can get a whole lot of the same sounds and if you just use those indian scales i mean you could do the same thing on on guitar you know yeah so yeah, but that's interesting i need to find that because i love jerry douglas yeah i'll see if i can find that album before yeah i'd love to hear that because um you dig it <laughs> uh your friend of mine plays with jerry so I, I, he introduced me to him a few years ago and i'd love to be able to spend some time with him playing oh that dude is he's sick. one of my favorites yeah he is sick. But, um, yeah, I'd love to hear that record. And spirituality, how does that come together for you? Um, you know, it's funny you say that because I'm I'm actually right now I'm trying to I've been doing some writing and I'm trying to figure out how to fuse the stories I've written about traveling through India and the stories I've written about playing you know with whoever it is you know whether it's neville's or bob dylan or whatever and and i'm trying to right now trying to figure out a way to 
write these stories in a way that they, you know, they come together to where it's not just stories about India and stories about being on the road, you know. So, so I'm thinking a lot about that lately. Um, that's been on my mind a lot lately, and it's. But to answer your question, uh, in a easier way, I guess, um, I'd have to say. The main thing, I think the most important thing about playing music is concentration and focus. And there's no better way to learn concentration and focus than to be involved in some type of spirituality, whether it's meditation or whether it's, you know, contemplating verses out the Bible or whatever, the, the Bhagavad Gita, whatever, whatever's your thing, um, to learn focus and to learn um one have a one point in mind that's the most important thing so i think that alone that that helped my plan just immensely when when i got to that point to where i can be on stage or in the studio whatever and not have any distractions you know be completely focused on what i'm doing and you know that's when you get into that flow you get into that you know that one pointedness. You know, just brings you through, through. You know, you know what it. You know what it does. I mean, you get in that groove and you just stay there. You know, so I think that's the most important thing. Um, I mean, from from doing some of the practices and spending time with Swamiji and and Punaji, things just you know just kind of wear off and you you, you absorb yeah. them. You know, whatever. Those guys are always transmitting something to you. Yeah. You know, and if you're able to. <laughs> pick it up if you're able to absorb it you just find your life changing you know you find yourself thinking in different ways you find yourself more focused and anything you do to discipline yourself is going to make you a better musician you know that's the main thing and it's interesting you kind of talk about focus because it's gosh I, i was reading this article the other day was it uh sonny rollins is that the sax player mm-hmm yeah, he, he was interviewed on uh, in NPR, and he said, "You can't solo and think at the same time." No, no, it's not. Which possible. was a, which was a, it's a fascinating bit of of wisdom right. because they were he, he was talking about in the in the recording process through his career, like every time they'd go into the studio, he says like he just never sounded good because he got so self conscious, right? And he was trying to he was trying to create a particular outcome. Yeah. Which you can't do. And so they would, when they got, when they would actually record the band just live, when the band is just doing their thing, yeah. Yeah. he's able to get into this place where he's not thinking. Exactly. And, it, and it's it's a weird thing to talk about. You have to be able to It's a type off. of focus. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but when, it's not. When, when you learn, when, when you learn <laughs> to focus your mind and when you get to a point where you have one pointed mind, there's no thinking going on. Yeah. There's no, you know, thought that doesn't mean that doesn't mean you don't have thoughts. Right. You still have thoughts, but they just pass by and you don't, you know, you just watch them. You know, that witness part of yourself yeah. just watches them go by. So it's when musicians, you know, want to create a particular outcome. They want to make sure they're, you know, what they're yeah. doing is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm really great, man. I'm, you know, I'm, I need to sound great, you know, because you gotta, you know, keep up that standard, you yeah. know, and your ego's keeping you, you know. Once you get past all of that, and you can just go with the flow, and then that's when it happens, you know. And that was the beauty of Neville Brothers was that, 
you know, there was seven of us or sometimes eight of us or whatever, all on the stage, and there was like one mind working. There was no separation. It was one mind working. And same thing with like Funky Meters. We would get on stage and just, we would make mistakes together. (laughs) We, We would... We, we we did yeah. we, we we were so in tune with each other that we would make mistakes together we would there would be like these um there'd be like these things where we we would do these medleys you know where one song segues into the next one and we had like a particular order of songs and there would be nights where all four of us would just go to the wrong song at the same time <laughs> And just look at each other and bust out laughing. Wow. You can't get any more in tune than that, you that's know, it. when you're making mistakes together, you know? <laughs> so, but that's the thing, you know, getting to that place where it's, you know, you're focused and, you, and you're not thinking. If you're thinking, you're lost already. And it's not just soloing, like you said. Sonny Rollins said, well, you know, my solos." It's re- I guess in a jazz, you know, in a, in a jazz genre, yeah, I could understand what he's talking about. But in some music, like say New Orleans music, or like what Neville's were doing and Funky Meters, that's consistent. Doesn't matter if it's a solo or what it is, it's got to be focused, you know, for it to really flow and for it to groove right, you know. Yeah, because there's nothing that can shut that down right quicker than getting in your analytical kind right, of right. frame. Yeah. You know, yeah, one guy to come along and start playing something. That's, yeah, you know, he thinks it throws he's everything hot. off. Yeah, yeah. Well, that is a problem where you have a band where you got, you know, th- half the band is grooving, and then all of a sudden you got a drummer that wants to show off and play some beats. That's like not. Like, how do you, can you think? Art Neville used to tell me that when I first joined the band. He would say, he would stop a song, like a rehearsal song. He would stop a song and he would say, how did you think to play what you just played against what the rest of the band's doing? You know, yeah, I mean, he would just bust, yeah. he would call you out in a second. And that's how I learned, you know, by, by him, you know, pointing out what's not working about that, yeah. you know? In my mind, it was working, yeah. you know, but it was because I hadn't yet reached that point of expertise that they were at, you know, 
And um, and then I, I, I picked it up after a while, you know. Well, I think it's like anything, you know. I mean, like if you're going to be, you know, if you're going to get into like figuring out what good wine is, like you know, you got to develop your like you, you got to drink it. Yeah, you, you got to. It don't matter how many books you read. You got to. Right, there, there's right. that experiential process right, right. of of. I mean, I'm amazed. I've been playing music since I was uh, eight years old, and and I'm still hearing new things. That, oh, yeah. You know. Absolutely. I I was actually oh, I've, I've talked about this one on my previous podcast episode, but I've been reading this fascinating book called uh, "The Master and His Emissary: uh, The Divided Brain and the Making of the Western World." This is a brain scientist from the UK, and he's talking about right brain and left brain kind of mm-hmm. stuff. Um, and what was I going to say? Man, I just lost the idea. <laughs> you haven't seen. I lost the idea. <laughs> uh, man, never mind. If it's a good enough idea, it'll but what's come back the book about? It's it's about how, um, in the Western world, this guy's a brain scientist, psychiatrist, philosopher over in the UK, and and um, he's making. He makes a lot of great points in there, but he's he's kind of you know, talks about how right hemisphere and left hemisphere of our brains, there's a lot of misconceptions that have become popular in the last few decades. And most people would tend to think that your left brain is kind of running things and your right brain is kind of subservient. He says, no, he says it's the other way around. He said the way you actually... Even though most people lived in left left brain. Yeah, yeah. well, and that's part of his thing. He says the Western world has been so biased towards left Left brain brain that we've ended up in a world that is governed by utilitarianism. Yeah. Um, because the, the two hemispheres perceive the world in a different way. So your right hemisphere is actually the way you experience the world. So it's experiencing the world in real, real time. And then it, it tosses it over to the left side to interpret some things about it. Yeah. yeah, So your right brain is big picture. Your left, left side is, is more focused, but the left brain doesn't experience realities that's happening. It, it, it holds representations of the world. Right, so it's right. more like the map right. versus reality. And the Eastern world is more rooted in right brain. Yeah, exactly. So that's why it's so strange when you go and, to and India. Pro- and, and even Africa as well. You <laughs> yeah, know, exactly. I mean, I think that, I mean, even, even what you see in New Orleans music, this, this communal yeah. the thing that, that is in yeah. all kinds of music, like the Neville brothers, like that's, that's not about individuality. It's it's yeah, coming no. together, getting in right. sync, and and getting into this kind of flow state together. And it's uh, um, it's it's just a powerful thing. And and he's he's kind of making the point that that in the Western world, if we don't start valuing, because he said, you know, I mean, the most valuable things that we can all agree on are really the things we experience in the right yeah. brain. You know, love, empathy, compassion, yeah. um, creativity divergent thinking all that happens in the right hemisphere um but we collapse it down to these representations of the world that we hold in our left brain and then we start treating the representations as if they are reality itself right and then we fight over our representations right right (laughs) and here we are and uh i i I think one of the things i was i was going to say a few minutes ago though is that you know kind of kind of going along with this like for me um like even last night, I'll, I'll sit down a lot, several nights a week before I go to bed. I'll sit down at, at my keyboard for 20, 30, sometimes 
45 minutes an hour not to play anything but to just play whatever just comes the, out yeah and like i don't think people realize like like for me like music is it's a form of meditation it can be at least it, yeah, it ain't absolutely. always no, <laughs> i'm yeah. as guilty as anybody else of getting too in my mind and and yeah. trying to please the crowd or trying to you yeah. know i, I do yeah, that yeah well, a certain <laughs> element of that you have to do to yeah. some certain point but when you just sit down like you yeah. said at night and just let whatever wants to come out come out. Oh yeah, that's that's the right brain. Yeah, you know, you're turning off left. You yeah. you're preparing yourself for sleep. You know, it helps yeah. to prepare yourself for bed. You know, and it turns off all of that crazy thinking and thoughts and all that stuff that you think you can't control and the stuff that keeps yeah. you awake at night. Yeah, yeah and it, it's it's just amazing that that I mean, even some of the stuff that I play sometimes I'm like. Yeah, yeah. Where did that? Where did that even come come from? from, Like it's like I don't even. I don't even. I would never put those notes with that chord, and somehow they they worked. But but then when you have that experience where you're doing that with other people, and it all like there's not a better experience to have in life, and that's the thing that addicts you to playing music. I think is like like yeah playing playing rock is fun you know but boy when you get that experience where everybody's in that same zone at yeah. one time and it's like you don't want to leave that place it's that's holy right. it's sacred it's exactly. transcendent and it's timeless it is you know that's how you know because you know whenever you get involved in something that's you're focused on you completely lose track of time Oh yeah, you know you have no idea whether it was a half hour or three hours went by. You know, at least that's the way it is for me, and um, that's being one pointed. You know, that's yeah. a beautiful thing. You know, and how many people go to be able to do that years and years without an experience like that? I know. I mean, maybe the closest they get is going to a Saints game where they're you know at least yeah. with other people, yeah. and you get you get some tastes of transcendence in that, or going to a rock concert or something yeah. like. But to actually make space in your life for that, like how beneficial that is for everything, you know? Some people get it individually, you know, by, you know, going fishing or whatever their thing is, you know, and you can experience it like that. But, um, but yeah, there's nothing, there's nothing that compares to when you've got a group of people all in the same space. That's just an unbelievable thing, you know? Yeah, really wreck you. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Swami Rama, when he came to America, and I think he came in 69 or something, his main, one of his main purposes that his master sent him over for was to bridge the gap between science and spirituality. Oh, wow. Because, you know, they had looked at it like, you know, the Western world was a great thing because it's given us industry. It's given us all these beautiful things that make our lives easier now, in some ways harder. But, you know, but still, we have all these things. And then the ancient world, of the Eastern world, has for centuries, you know, cultivated spirituality in a way that we don't really have a clue. You know, I mean, not even a clue. Um, So that was one of his purposes to try to, you know, bridge that gap and get people to understand that there is a a place where they meet 
you know, and there is a, a way that we can have both, um, that we can, we can, you know, have business and we can create things and we can create industry and we can still be ethical and we can still be spiritual and live properly, you know, and, you know, so that's what. See, the, the, the danger of, I think of, and I, I love science. I, I read science stuff for fun all the time. Um, I'm just fascinated by it. But I think the danger, you know, particularly in the West, this this rationalistic, materialistic divide between, you know, like, yeah. like we're only going to say something that we can experiment and it, it, yeah. we're only going to say it's true if we can if verify we can, it. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, well, the moment that you actually think you know something how how arrogant that is yeah. and and now you've just shut down the whole process of i mean you may which which is why it seems like every every so often there's some big discovery in science that throws like like einstein with the theory of relativity which by the way he didn't get in a university he was daydreaming you know he, like right, he, right. He, he was right. in a state of he was in an alpha open, state yeah. in his right brain right you know? and and, yeah. and and even einstein would say all the time that the importance of imagination in in science and and i i've always that's always struck me as weird this this divide between science yeah, and religion because it really shouldn't exist no um it really shouldn't because yeah, when you look at the really high level guys like Einstein, they didn't have that wall. No, no. he didn't have that wall in between him, you know. No, <clears throat> and and guys like Swami Rama, who he's not only a Indian yogi and meditation master and tantric master, but he studied at Oxford. He's got a doctor's degree. Yeah. He's, he's, <laughs> there's a lot more going on sure. with him than just his you know robes, you know. Yeah. Um, and you know he would talk about that all the time about how there, there shouldn't be that yeah. there shouldn't be that separation you know um because you know people that i think people that are rooted in that scientific mind that where you know yeah you have to be able to see it or feel it or touch it to be able for it to be real if they just you know took a few minutes to examine their own life yeah. <laughs> that philosophy would go out the window yeah. because yeah. there's a whole lot of things we i mean do you see gravity right i mean do you see you know what i mean there's there's all kind of things you can't touch and feel but you take for granted and you know they're real yeah you know they exist you know Absolutely. i mean even the most scientific brain has to admit that sometimes he has intuitive flashes yeah you know, and sometimes he just knows things without any way of possibly knowing that, but he knows it, yeah. you know? So... And what about human consciousness? I mean, come on. That's like the the thing that science has figured out the least about and is the most important thing. Yeah. The, the most important gift out there. And and they... they you, you, they can't figure it out. No. It, it, it could be that consciousness holds all this stuff together. Like Absolutely. The, the consciousness is, it could be that there's consciousness the problem, in everything <laughs> to some extent. Everything is con. I mean, depending on, you know, your tradition in our tradition, everything is consciousness. Yeah. Nothing can be separated from each other. Yeah. Oh, that's good. Nothing can be, it's all, divine mother or however you want to yeah. 
phrase it or call it God, him, her, whatever. <laughs> it's all one. It's all different frequencies of energy, you know, vibrating at a different frequency. And I know, and I know this all sounds crazy to some of you listeners right now. <laughs> They're used but, to me, so no. <laughs> but it's something that... that um, it's something that's been proven to me over and over for the last, you know, 50 years or something, you know, 60-something years. Um, you know, science, a scientific mind, yeah, if they just took a few minutes to examine their own life, they would, their philosophy would have to go away. Yeah. I mean, you know, there, there's really nothing. That, that does, there shouldn't be any kind of wall between between science and spirituality. You know? I'm with you. What was it like uh, working with uh, Lanois and the the whole uh, that whole thing? Yeah, one of the first things he told me when we started working on Yellow Moon was, "Look, Brian, this is going to be tough. <laughs> it's not going to be easy, but I promise you'll learn something." And he was right because it, it was tough working when he was, you know. Had its, you know, <laughs> had its rough spots, but in, but for the most part, it was just such a beautiful thing. I mean, I learned so much from that guy. <clears throat> you know, I made sure. You know, I was already aware of who he was, of course, from the Peter Gabriel stuff and you oh, know yeah. some other things he had done. So I already knew who he was. As a matter of fact, um, when we met him, I remember. We were on a tour bus, and we were heading up into the Northeast. And I had, I think it was a Rolling Stone magazine or some magazine that had done a feature on Dan. So I remember that had a full-page picture of him and then a story about his career and everything. So I remember reading that article, and I remember going to the back of the bus Cyril always had the the back. Cyril Neville always had the back of the bus, so um, I remember showing him Dan's picture and showing him this article, and I said, "Man, if we could get this guy to produce a Neville Brothers record, it would be unbelievable." 
you know. And Cyril was like, you know, who was that? I don't, I don't know who that is. I didn't, you know, I said, look, trust me. I said, if we could ever get this guy to do a record, man, it would be phenomenal. Two days later, we get to New York, and we're playing at the Ritz, and we're getting ready to go on stage. We're sitting around in the green room, and Dan comes walking in the dressing room, introduced himself. Said, hi, I'm Dan Lanois, you know. Yeah, I just come to hear you guys, man. I, you know, I just, I, I couldn't believe it. I just couldn't believe it. It just all fell right into place, wow. you know. So it was, you know, definitely meant to happen, you know. And then he said, you know, I'll be down in New Orleans soon. I'll look y'all up, you know. So a few months later, he, he got an apartment on Royal Street and came down. And, you know, called up the brothers and we all got together and started hanging and um, one thing led to the other and then next thing you know, we were doing a record, you know. So that's how that came about. So how so. different was it working with somebody like Daniel Lanois as opposed to the way y'all done previous albums? <laughs> <laughs> um, there's no comparison. <laughs> There's absolutely no comparison unless you're working with Brian Eno or yeah. <laughs> one of his partners, you know, somebody like that. that you know, at, at least to my experience, up until that point, um, producers on Neville Records was always just some guy that the record company sent down yeah. or some guy that finagled himself into a position to be able to you know he put up some money you know whatever yeah. you know but but musically no there was no match i mean there was nobody had ever come along uh musically or even close to uh to um to dan um he's a completely unique character <laughs> um but I guess the thing I learned from him was, you know, his his thing was about really talking about, we were talking a minute ago about one-pointedness and focus. There's nobody more focused than, than Dan as far as a producer goes. And the whole thing with him is when you're recording, you know, you allow for chance, allow for things to happen. And you, he just knows when it's there. You know what I mean? So don't have any preconceived notion of how you want this to come out. Yeah, you want to have some guidelines, but you also want to leave space for things to just happen, you know? And he was a master at being able to pull stuff out of you that you didn't know you had yourself, you know? And he would pull it out of you and create these spaces, you know, and just... And he knew when it was there, you know, he knew when it, when he knew up to what point to work and then he knew when to stop, you yeah. know, um, which is the, a mark of a great producer, you know. But he had it in a way just that, you know, nobody else because he, he was just so in the moment, you yeah. know, so in the moment. And he, and he had a way of reeling everybody in to where he he made sure you were there too. He was present. I mean, he was a very present person. He made sure you were present, you know, when you were there, you know. That was his genius, you know. I remember you saying something to me that he told you when y'all were tracking. I, I I don't know if it was the Bob Dylan one or the Neville Brothers one, but um, he said something about, like, you know, stop trying to play the guitar. So... 
Oh yeah, yeah, he, yeah, <laughs> yeah. One day it was just me and him sitting around. I think I was doing some overdubs or something. And um, you know, I did a couple overdubs and we'd listening back and and then yeah, just I got out the blue. He said, Brian, don't play so professionally. <laughs> And I didn't quite get it at first, you know. I was like, "What?" You know. And he said, "Don't play so professionally." He said, "You you playing it like, like one of those really hot shot studio guys." He said, "Play it innocently. Play it wow. like you're playing it for the first time. Play it like a kid playing it for the first time. You know, don't." Don't go through the motions with it like a studio guy would. You know, you know be present with it. You know, wow. I, I'm I'm paraphrasing yeah, now, yeah. but but that's what he meant. You know, that that's what he meant. Wow. And over time, that's kind of unfolded. You know, into meaning a lot of great things. You know, kind of like a you know a great mantra you're given from yeah. <laughs> you know some great spiritual master. It's a seed that unfolds over time, and that and all little things like that. He's told me. I've I've always remembered, and they've always, you know, they've always come to me and at the right moment, you know, when yeah. I need to, when I need to stop playing so professionally, you know. Well, um, I, and I think that's the, I think that's one reason, like Daniel Anwa, the stuff that he's produced, whether it's was Peter Gabriel, the Neville Brothers, or U two, or Willie Nelson. I mean, like, or even his own stuff. There there is always such a spiritual quality to it that yeah. I don't hear and hardly any other producers. Like there's such a, um, and, and, and even that thing you say, I mean, it reminds me of even what, what Jesus had said, you know, blessed are the pure in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, you know, or, right. or, you know, you like the, you got to come to God as a child. Like there's this, right. this An innocence, there's this, that yeah. Innocence. Like, yeah. Like, like sometimes all the things that we know are the very things that actually keep us from That's entering a, right. into transcendence. You right. Know? And, and that goes back to the right left brain <laughs> thing yeah, we does, were just talking totally. about, because that's when, you know, when you let that left brain thing take over and you're thinking, then you're not hitting that mark. You're not yeah. hitting that, that realness, that in the moment thing, you know, you have to be right brain to be hitting that, that spot, you yeah. know? And I think that's what he meant by don't play so professionally. Yeah. Because when you're playing professionally, you're, you're playing, you're in your left brain and you're playing from a place from things you already know. Yeah. Whereas he wants you in a space where you're creating right now. Yeah. You know, and yeah. that's the difference, you know. I'm 
most of the time such a i just i feel like right now i'm 47 years old and i just feel like just even in this past year like when it comes to at least playing live with a band like i just feel like i'm finally starting to be able to do that a little live mm-hmm. for just a few moments yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's it's because it, it, it it's it, it is amazing how self-conscious and oh, you know yeah. all the things it's, that, hard, it's yeah. just so hard to settle down and you know when you're performing yeah and and, and to to actually get free from the insecurities yeah. and the yeah it's the, very it's, hard it's very hard i mean people laugh people laugh they, they laugh at me when i tell them or people think i'm kind of lying or just making it up when i tell them i still get i still have stage fright yeah you know what i mean i'm 63 i'm gonna be 64 <laughs> next week i still have stage fright but it took me years to even realize that i had it <laughs> yeah. you know because it, it was like not stage fright like, you know, I can't go out there or anything like that. But I just, I, I remembered, you know, a few years back, I, I started thinking how when I was, I started thinking about when I was like 18, I used to play a lot at, there was a club on, um, on Claiborne Avenue right at Napoleon. And for years it was called the Beaconet or something. But when I used to play there, it was called Ziggy's. And it was, you know, I'm talking about <clears throat> mid-70s. Yeah. You know, Bowie was big and the whole glitter scene was happening. And there was a club called Ziggy's. And that was like the only real rock club in town that I really played. But I remembered that every time I'd be playing Ziggy's, or really anywhere, but for some reason I thought about Ziggy's, that every time I'd go to play... On the way to driving to work, I would get so incredibly sleepy. I mean, I would just get like where I could just crawl under the covers and knock out, you know? Really? And and I'm 64 years old and it still happens. <laughs> and I, it took me years to realize that that's stage fright. Oh, wow. I mean, this sleepiness that comes on me comes over me is actually stage fright it's running away it's me trying to mm. deny that i have to go do this you know what wow. i mean i've gotta yeah. gotta go do this you know and the funny part is it's it's i realized too that it's only when i'm in a kind of intimate situation like if it's a small club and there's people right there in front of you you know what i mean that's when it happens when we go play amphitheaters in front of 13,000 people, I don't experience it. Yeah. Because you don't feel yeah. the crowd. The crowd's just there. Right. You don't feel them. You know, you, you have no, you know, proximity to them. You know, they're, they're far away and they're out there and the lights are in your face. You don't really see them. But when you're in a club and people mm-hmm. are right in your face staring you in the eye, that's a whole nother thing. Oh, I, I mean, that's <laughs> not as easy as people think, no matter how long you've been doing it, you know? And the funny thing is, I, I, I started talking to other musicians about this, seasoned musicians that I come up with and all, and, and when I'd tell them, they'd say, oh, that still happens to me. 
Wow. I, I could just go to bed right before a show. I could just. Interesting, yeah. They yeah. all tell me the same thing, you know. <laughs> and some of them realize it's stage fright. Some of them don't, you yeah. know. And they do now. And they know now. But because I was, man, yeah, it's a stage fright. That's all it is, wow. you know. Yeah. So, um, you know. Uh, but but you know over time you get over it you know you yeah. you have it you get to the gig you know you got to be there and it goes away you know yeah. you get into your your zone and then you know you do what you have to do you know so I know I I used to uh, be the worship leader at this church over in Kenner mm -hmm. and they were in this I mean the church was growing like crazy but they were in a little strip mall in Kenner off of Williams Boulevard. And uh, when I first came on, and they were doing five services on the mm. weekend. So they do wow. uh, two on, or one on Saturday and two on Sunday, or um, and, and four on Sunday. And then by the end of that first year, they were up to seven. So we would, so wow. I, and I was still gigging. So I would, I would, some weekends, I would, between Friday night and Sunday afternoon, I was playing like 20, 22 hours worth of music. Ooh. And, um, but it was so funny because we were, they had to do so many services because it, they just had such a small facility. So they could hold about 250 mm -hmm. people in this room, but the, the front As row it started growing. Oh yeah. yeah. So the guy on the front row would be standing, like I could touch his face. Right, right, you right, know, right, I'm not right. a tall guy and the stage was only about a foot off the ground. Right. And this guy was like six foot. And I swear this guy would stand and and I, and because the stage was so small, I'm up at the front of the stage. You know, I got the we got this full band and stuff, but I would be leading a worship song, and this guy is standing a foot and a half. His face is like two feet away from me. Yeah, and he's just staring straight at me, and I, it was unnerving. I know. And so I, I got to this place where, as I would lead worship, I would just like keep my eyes closed, and still to this day, even at my own church, you know, it's like I yeah, still. Lead I imagine that's got to be way more scarier than what I'm doing because at least when I'm doing it you know there'll be people standing right there but they're standing there then yeah. like, like this you know like playing the air guitar right. or, you know and like making faces that the same faces you're making or whatever you know and that's not near as bad as what you're saying that would yeah that would freak oh, me out oh yeah it, it was to no end yeah it was know? unnerving and I, I know exactly what you mean it's it's uh when you <laughs> yeah, it's it really is weird. It, I mean, even being in a, in a in a smaller venue where you at least have light shining on you and it's dark out there and you can't see, yeah. like it's it's a lot, it makes it a lot easier. Yeah, but yeah, it's because it, I mean, in church, <laughs> even when people are loosened up a little bit and they're singing along or whatever, there's still that little bit of stiffness, you know, oh, that yeah. they want to stay. You know what I mean? Respectful. You know what I mean? So. Yeah. I stand respectful, so they're staring you in the eye, just looking at you. That would freak it's me awkward. out so bad. Gee, I don't know about that. That's a little too close for that. A little kind too of... close, yeah. It's, it's, it's weird how that all works, but <laughs> but I remember we used to play. We used to play. Um, it's weird how sometimes you know that would come over me, like in places like Ziggy's and all of that. But then we would go down to Port Sulphur. We used to play this joint in Port Sulphur called um the melody lounge and it was just an old roadhouse and the stage was set into the wall you know so and there was no entrance except from the audience you just walked up to the front of the stage and it wasn't even a stage it was 
just even with the, you know, it was even, you know, yeah. with the crowd. And it was just walls on the side. So it's like you're in this little box. <laughs> and then the people would pack in and they would come all the way up as close as they could oh, get dude. to you. And you were locked <laughs> in. You, the only way out was through through the crowd. So And they used to stand there right in your face. And so it was like right there. <sighs> You know, but but again, they were playing the air guitar yeah, and jamming yeah. along. I mean, they, so it wasn't as bad, you know, because yeah. they were like getting into it, you know. But then at the end of the night, if when you said good night, they didn't want to hear that, and they wouldn't move. <laughs> so you couldn't get off the stage. And if you tried to get off the stage, they start throwing chairs at you and stuff. They would like, Whoa, I mean, yeah, this was Port Sulphur, you know. I mean, it was like you know, oil guys, you know, oil workers, and yeah, you know, and like, and until they were ready to let you off the stage, you had to play because it was no way out, you know. And they would get violent, yeah. If if, wow. if they didn't want, if they were ready to keep going, it didn't matter if it was five o'clock in the morning, you know. They they wanted you to go, you had to keep playing. You know? Oh Lord. <laughs> Wow. That's the old days. <laughs> so what about uh so so you did the Yellow Moon record, which is really one of my favorite Neville Brothers records. And then and that was the cool thing when when we did that Bob Dylan mass uh, a few months ago and you came in and played guitar and I found out like this dude's play he played on Oh Mercy, which really I think Oh Mercy it's still one of my favorite Bob Dylan albums because yeah. that was the first Bob Dylan album I bought myself. I mean, I'd heard oh, his really? stuff. Wow. And I was like, I was in high school when that came out in in Midland, Texas. Okay, and wow. um, yeah, and that was '89. Yeah, and I, I I got I was probably a sophomore in high school, and I got that album. And uh, still to this day, it's like I never get tired of that album. Like I, the whole thing, I love it. And, yeah. Uh, and then yeah, finding out you played guitar on that, and I was it's like, definitely one that I can listen to all the way through. Yeah. I mean, I well, I listen, I listen to all of Bob's records all yeah. the way through, because even on the, you know, it's funny. Like during the eighties, this this Yellow Moon, I mean, uh, Oh Mercy was kind of like uh, some of the magazines said it was his comeback album, yeah, yeah. and they. You know, they, they labeled it in all kind of ways. But Bob did have a string of records through the 80s that wasn't as up to scratch sure. as, you know, Blood in the Tracks or, you know, yeah. some of the earlier ones. And so he went through that. You know, he was going through a rough period where the record industry was changing. Um, dance music was getting bigger. Oh, yeah. Record company was putting him in the studio with DJ type guys with drum machines and and you know trying to figure out how to make Bob Dylan sound like you know stack up to MTV yeah. you know trying to make an MTV so that must have been really really tough for him and I think he just got fed up he just started making records in his garage just acoustic guitar him singing and he started doing old folk songs old jazz songs. You know, you do all Mississippi Sheiks and tunes yeah. like that, and and I love those. I love those records. And then even the ones that kind of got trashed back then, like Empire Burlesque and um, Down in the Groove. I listen to those records now, and I love them because yeah, the production might be weird because they were putting him through changes. But the songs are great. Yeah. The songs are still great, great songs. You don't songs. write bad songs that often. He don't. You know, I mean, he just, <laughs> he just don't. And um, so, you know, so when 
Oh Mercy came along, you know, I think it was the first time in a long time that he had been in a studio with a real producer, um, somebody who really knew how to shape a record, somebody who knew, you know, what songs were the best songs and, you know, what needed help and what needed work and what was working and, and, and it just all came together, you know. Um, I think the, the way that happened um, with Neville Brothers, see, when when Neville's was recording Yellow Moon, we recorded two Dylan songs on that album. Oh, yeah, with God We'd, on Our Side. And yeah, God on our, with God on Our Side and um, Ballad of Hollis Brown. Yeah, yeah. So... We had we had already had those recorded. Bob came to town to play at Audubon Zoo. And um, so we invited him over to the studio. And, um, well, he, he had already been talking to uh, Lanois. I don't know if he had, I don't know if he had met him yet or if he was just meeting him then. But <clears throat> Bono had tried to, Bono told him about Lanois and said, man, you really should work with this guy. You know, he's, he's you know, he's what you need. So he planned on meeting him or seeing him when he came down. So he played Audubon Zoo, and then the next day came over to the studio, and Dan played him Hollis Brown and With God on Our Side. And he couldn't believe it because, you know, we were, we were recording in a house on St. Charles Avenue. So he, God, he just, you know, he listened to God on Our Side, and he, he said, you recorded that here? house you know <laughs> played him hollis brown you know he said man you recorded this here you know, yeah. <laughs> so he loved that idea of being in a nice house you know um i think he even i don't know if it was in his book or in an interview but somewhere i remember him saying something like it was it was great to not have to walk through some generic studio with 
Arctic temperatures and pinball yeah. machines <laughs> and secretaries and people types. and yeah and all that kind of stuff. So he loved the idea that you know it was in a house that nobody knew about and there wasn't any hangers on. Yeah. It was business. It was everybody was working. Was working hard. So he loved that. You know. So uh, when we finished Yellow Moon. And he was about to start Bob's record. Um, Dan found a house on Sonyat Street, moved all the gear in there, and we recorded Oh Mercy in, in that house. So, yeah. How long did it take to record that album? Um, I don't, I, I think total, I think total maybe two or three months, maybe two months or something. Yeah. I was there for a couple of weeks, maybe, off and on. Um, but I think they, I think they worked on it probably a couple of months. Yeah, which is pretty quick for a yeah a sure. record of that you know proportion. At least back in those days when we really had budgets, you know, when yeah. you actually <laughs> had a budget to do a record, you don't really. That doesn't happen too much anymore, you know, but. That was back in the day when you could really focus on making a great record because you had the money to do it. talking when we when we were talking about working with Bob and working with Dan you know it was that that Bob experience like also opened up a whole new world that made things a whole lot easier in some respect yeah. and then it made it a whole lot harder in some respect because it kind of showed me you know I was writing songs already and I was doing had well no I hadn't had an album out yet but I was writing songs and doing things. I had co-writes on the Neville record. But geez, getting in there with Bob. And, you know, it's one thing to listen to his albums and drool over the lyrics, you know, drool <laughs> over his singing these incredible songs. But it was a whole nother thing to experience it in person, you know, and it was like, boy, do I have my work cut out for me. You know, because I... You know, anytime you <laughs> meet somebody like that or get anytime you get to work with somebody like that, it ups the whole game. You know, for you, it, it just naturally ups the game for you. You now have to 
okay, I've got this new standard that I have to live up to. Yeah. And wow, you know, it's like, that's not easy. But but it forced me to work harder. It forced me to, you know, not be so satisfied just because I managed to finish three verses. You right. know what I mean? <laughs> you know, sometimes you're trying to get something done. It's like, all right, I got three verses. It's finished. Yeah. You know, yeah, I don't do that anymore. You yeah. know, yeah, I've learned to get out of that. I've learned to not be so satisfied with myself, you know? Well, I know um, even after that, around the time we were doing that Bob Dylan thing, I did a class, I taught a class over there called uh, Blown in the Wind, the spirituality of Bob Dylan. So like, it was the first time I've really like dug into, mm-hmm. you know I mean? I've always liked Bob Dylan, but yeah, really you know, really studying it. him. Yeah, and yeah. it's like, yeah, it's another oh, thing. Lord. But I, I swear, like, Man, I like it's changed me as a songwriter. Just just yeah, spending absolutely. six weeks digging into his material yeah, and, and and like yeah. paying attention to like, uh, yeah, he's he's uh, yeah, it's like where did he's on another plane from, <laughs> you know? And just such, be- I mean, just so beautiful. Just some of them songs are just the most beautiful songs, you know. People all, you know, you hear people talking, hey, his voice, I can't listen to them songs. Eh. Shut up. (laughs) Just shut up. Because you don't know what you're talking about, man. If you, nobody, you know, there's all these people that cover his songs, but nobody puts it across like he puts it across. You know, just with the exception of Hendrix's All on the Watchtower, (laughs) that is the only Bob Dylan cover that, that to me surpassed the original version. And even Bob Dylan said so. That's right. That's right. <laughs> and and but that is absolutely the only one. I don't care who else you are, no matter how great you are, your cover does not to me stand up to yeah. to Bob's original versions of anything, you know. Cuz he's just telling the truth, you know. He's yeah, just Yeah, totally. It's all he's doing is telling the truth. Yep. You know, and it's it hits you, you know. So, he's he's always I mean, at least popularly, I mean, he's he's definitely seems to be a very enigmatic figure what what was it like i mean is he enigmatic when you're working is he like strange to work with or is he like um well you know it well i had met him before we started recording so i i'd already met him and i'd already seen him at some shows and stuff um so you know we'd talk and you know, but for the most part, he didn't have much to say to anybody, you know, because yeah. when, when Bob would walk in at night, he was, he, the door would open up, he would come walking through the room where we were recording. He didn't say hello to anybody. He didn't address anybody. He didn't look at anybody. He walked in the door. He walked through the room. He went to the kitchen he poured a cup of coffee, he lit a cigarette, he started working on whatever lyrics, whatever song we were going to work on that night. And he was completely focused. The, the sessions were strictly work. I mean, there was zero 
BS going on. Really? There was no joking around. Like most, you know, yeah. most New Orleans <laughs> sessions are kind of a joke. Yeah. They kind yeah. of aggravate me because it's a little, it gets a little too friendly sometimes. Sure. Everybody starts joking around and next thing you know, somebody's walking in with crawfish, thinking of the room. And, you know what I mean? <laughs> New Orleans sessions can be anything. With Bob, my man, it was work. It was, we're here to work and that's it. That was it. But having said that, you know, he talked, I'd talk to him, you know, because I just kind of talked to him like anybody else, you know. And, um, but, you know, there wasn't no, you know, wasn't no palling going on, you know, no slapping each other on the back and nothing like that. So it was, it was just work. But um, I've been around him uh, when he was very cordial and, and fun. And then I've been around him where he don't even know who you are, you know. Yeah. So... <laughs> He, you know, you know, and he's he's got a, he's he's got a way of hiding if he wants to. He can be in the room, and if he don't, you know, it's kind of like a man, these masters I'm talking about. You know, <laughs> if, if 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 he don't want to see you or anything, he could be in a room with you, and you won't realize that he's actually right there, like in a chair. <laughs> yeah, it's it's a weird thing, you know. Wow. Um, some of the guys. Yeah, some of the guys came in and they said, "Man, what, you know, when's Bob gonna show up? Bob's sitting right there on the couch. You know, he's been here for three days. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you know that that happened. You know, wow. so um, you know, uh, a friend of mine told me they saw him sitting in Snub Harbor one night." Snub, snug, snug harbor. Yeah. When I said snub harbor, snub harbor, snug harbor. I'm sorry. And um, he was sitting in there with his hoodie on, and and this friend of mine recognized him, but he was the only one in the place that recognized him. He said he went over and talked to him, and he was sitting there at a table by himself, having a drink, listening to the band, and there was like not a soul in the room knew who he was. Wow, realized who he was, you know. So he's pretty good at you know. You know, staying low key. Wow. You know, if he wants to, you know. So, yeah, and he's not the kind of person to go out and, you know, make a show of himself in public. You know what yeah. I mean? He, yeah. he, you know. So, but it was really great working with him. I learned a whole lot. I made sure I kept my eyes and ears open completely as much as possible. Um, you know, it was really funny. Right before that session, um, right before that session, I was reading this book. I can't remember the name of it, but it was by a Swami named uh, Rudrananda. And um, he was a teacher that lived in New York, I think. And, um, and, I, and I'll never forget reading, it was one section where he talked about um, if, if you want to learn something from a teacher, whoever it is you consider that teacher, whether yeah. it's a, you know, a yoga teacher or a spiritual teacher or a musician or, yeah. you know, whoever it is. When you want to learn something from that person, you simply stay completely open to them and you open your heart and you stay completely open to them and you manage to remain open no matter how they treat you. Hmm. No matter what, no matter how they treat you, no matter what they tell you, no matter what they think of you, you just stay open 
and they can't help but transmit to you what it is you want to absorb. Wow. Wow. <laughs> like, because you stay open to them, you're rendering them helpless. They, they, they can't defend themselves from you, you know, wow. because you remain open. Oh, that's good. So no matter how they treat you, you just keep absorbing it, you know? And, and, and I, I read that like two days before the session, you know? So it was like that was, on, that was, yeah, it was perfect time. It was on my mind, you know, the whole time. So I had my eyes and ears open and, and I was always like that with Lanois. You know, I learned so much from those guys. Um, Dan and Malcolm Byrne and, and Mark Howard, those three guys were the best, you know, absolutely the best. Yeah. So, you know. Wow. <laughs> Well, that was a cool conversation there. I thoroughly enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. Look, um, and that's just a chunk of the conversation. There is a whole lot more to this conversation, which I'm going to make a special episode that will be available to folks who support Extra Crispy on Patreon. So... We got all kinds of other goodies in there where we're talking Brian Eno, Dr. John, all kinds of other stuff. Very interesting things, and uh, I think you might dig it. So go over to Patreon, type in Extra Crispy Podcast, and you can visit our Patreon page and become a member. Just five bucks a month. You can't even get one of them fancy coffee drinks at Starbucks for five bucks these days. But you can support something creative and engaging and uh, eye-opening. I think this episode fits all of those things. So, and by the way, I know I say this a lot, but nobody pays attention. It'd be really nice if a couple of you out there would go over to iTunes and give us five stars if you like what you hear. Give some stars, give a nice review, even better. Send this episode or another episode to one of your friends. Turn turn some friends on to Extra Crispy. Everybody needs a little Extra Crispy in their life. All right, enough of that. And by the way, if you are on Spotify, I have just put up an Extra Crispy podcast playlist. Uh, Let's see what the... It's called Extra Crispy Playlist. So search that on Spotify and you can hear whole versions of many of the songs that we played on here. We, we played a few cuts from the Neville Brothers, Yellow Moon, With God on Our Side. I uh, played a track from the Funky Meters from Jazz Fest, playing Fire, Fire on the Bio, and uh, a couple of cuts from Bob Dylan's Oh Mercy. We're going to be updating this playlist uh, as we go ahead and, and putting on songs from different artists that we feature on here. So... Until next time, may all your conversation, especially your Thanksgiving conversations, may they be extra crispy. And may your Thanksgiving turkey not be, <laughs> unless it's fried. All right. Peace out.